title the title of this evening's talk I'm not hearing myself the title of this evening's talk is um, is against the stream warming to dukkha I loved, I loved Gill's comment this morning about um, a, just an alternative to the view of our practice as uh, training our attention, uh, which is, I, I often think of it as training, but I also often think of it as, <laughs> as described in, in one of the Tibetan traditions as getting used to the present, and I like the version of warming to the present. Of course, a lot of what it means to warm to the present means to warm to whatever presents itself. And as you may have noticed, it's not all pretty. And so I like to begin the, the, the first evening of every retreat by congratulating you uh, for making it through the first day. It is not for the faint of heart. It takes a certain kind of courageous attention. It takes a kind of rousing uh, attention, and it takes a sustaining attention. It takes a lot of attention, and it's, it really is, as the, the Buddha described, uh, like swimming against a stream. And, or you could, as Mary may describe it, as swimming against a swamp. As, So it's not easy to settle into a practice period, but yet I came in here at five for the five o'clock sitting, and I'm sure there were people, some of you were struggling a little bit with your experience. You'd put in a long day already. But I also felt already over the course of this day a kind of quieting. And it reminded me, actually, my mind started to cascade with three different readings or three different passages and I had this confidence that you were beginning to uh, to touch something that maybe didn't seem so amazing but uh, but it reminded me whatever the silence of the room reminded me of the words of Dujam Rinpoche where he describes the way the process works of our mind he he says after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises, is there not a, a vivid clarity, a fresh presentness, or a fresh awareness, fresh something or other, that has never altered even by a hair? In the reading it says, Ho, this is awareness. That's the good news. But isn't it true that suddenly a thought arises? And of course, if this thought is noticed, it is recognized as just an appearance or an aspect of awareness, no problem. But if it goes unnoticed, it spreads out into what he calls ordinary thinking. Any of you notice that today? 
This he calls the chain of delusion. This chain of delusion, this following, not noticing the thoughts as they arise, this chain of delusion, we have literally been been being born into for, as one of my teachers put it, 35 million years. We have been following that train and entering into that world of our thoughts, into, you could say, a narrow vortex. That choice that the Thaddeus Golas reading says, there's that choice between expansion or openness and contraction, time and time again, our mind innocently has chosen that path of, of the narrow vortex of our thoughts, and then all the feelings that go with those. And our bodies, of course, have formed around those thoughts and feelings, notions about ourselves, notions about life, all the various reactions that come with that. And we then quite, quite a lot of the time feel as though we are uh, imprisoned, uh, having a really hard time bearing whatever it is that's going on. So as I was having that kind of little stream of thought, I thought of the poem by Rumi where he says, why do you stay in prison? when the door is so wide open. Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. That when we come out of that tangle of fear thinking and live in silence, there is space. It's open and inviting such a beautiful thing, right here, right now, not, as Gil says, not there and then, but here and now. Why do we leave such a a beautiful, a beautiful um, possibility? Why have we, for 35 million years, been innocently going out of ourselves, into that world of imagination, choosing contraction instead of expansion. (coughs) What are we distracting ourselves from? What are we distracting ourselves from? On one hand, I'm suggesting we're distracting ourselves from something beautiful within us. But unfortunately, or fortunately, the door to that beauty of presence, that door that is wide open, that natural, fresh awareness, presence that has never altered even by hair, the gateway or the doorway is the opening to our condition as we find ourselves. It means opening to what the Buddha described as the inherent part of every person's life 
anyone who is born, any sentient being, any being who draws breath, experiences uh, what he called dukkha, which has got so many translations. It's, it's often conventionally translated as suffering, but it's more elaborately translated as that which is difficult to bear, stress, pain, unreliable, unsatisfactoriness, all those elements of our lives that out of love for ourselves we run from. Not realizing that the more we choose contraction or that world of, of time, the world of our imagination, the world of what's next, the more we enter that vortex of what you could call becoming, the more we run from, from our relief, from where relief is to be found. That leads to the third poem that came to mind, and uh, Mary Grace and I had success. I, I was able to find it on the internet at, right after the sitting, and we were able to get the network to, the printer to work, and we were both exclaiming the greatness of life in that moment. <laughs> But it's the poem from Rumi called, uh, Inside This New Love. He says, inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an ax to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side. Die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you have died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. One of those little synchronistic moments is, <laughs> as I walked outside after our great success, walking down the hill to tea time, there was that speechless full moon, captivating. That in the midst of, of all of our internal dramas, there is this presence, there is this simplicity that is always available, even in the midst of the most intense drama. And that's why we keep saying here, now, just that simple. This innocent escape, running from silence, going out of ourselves in search, has, and one of the reasons that we so often uh, run out of ourselves in search is because our habit of mind, our innocent search for, for relief. As I think of that, I think of the line from Nisargadatta where he says, your flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. We don't do it because we're bad or we're bad meditators. We do it out of, out of love, but not realizing that we're actually obscuring that speechless full moon. And what is, what's happened 
to our experience of the present moment from that constant running, that constant search, that constant living in the imagined world of, of, our, of our ideas, is the present moment, as Eckhart Tolle puts it, the present moment has become a, uh, a place that we just have to get through in order to get on to the next thing. Says it, he says it's one of three things. It's either a means to an end, it's an obstacle, or it's the enemy. And this is the, this is the dukkha, this is the habit that, we, that the Buddha invited us in the first noble truth to welcome, to see, see it how it is. To warm to this truth, to actually see what our minds are doing. How do we do that? We have to or reorient ourselves very gradually, even though it feels like hard labor, gradually orienting ourselves to the present moment, using as our anchor this, this body, this, what the Buddha called this fathom-long body, that of course when we come to, to begin to abide in this physical body, we feel, what else do we feel? What do we, else do we have to warm to? The legacy of having abandoned it. It hurts. It's achy. It's restless. And the restlessness and tension has just spawned an enormous compulsion, compulsion of thinking. And it goes around and around and around. But the invitation is to welcome this. See it for what it is. That in fact, the more that we open to it, just feel, oh, this is, this is achiness, this is burning, this is stabbing, this is itching, this is restlessness, this is, this is agitation. The more we do that, because our mindfulness is what I call equal opportunity mindfulness, anything that is then brought into our attention becomes the cause of, of more of a sense of presence. It becomes the cause of a brightening of our minds, the brightening of our awareness. It's as though everything I pay attention to, even the things that I find most distasteful, begin a process of harmonizing, of, of bringing my attention together with that immediate experience. And it produces a, a calm, as Mary Grace described this morning. A, con- a kind of concentration. And with that kind of concentration comes a brightening. Maybe you even got a sense of that a few times today, even though you were using as your field of meditation the swamp, that which is difficult to bear in the body. So this first noble truth, uh, the Buddha suggested uh, that this truth must be uh, understood or welcomed. Of course, he described it in the teachings as, um, as the fact that there is stress. There are basically three kinds of, three main kinds of stress or suffering or that which is difficult to bear. There is, there is the stress or suffering of birth, 
suffering of aging, the suffering of sickness, the suffering of dying, the suffering of not getting what you want, frustrated desire, the frustration of uh, the stress of not wanting what you get, the stress of loss, stress of being separated from near and dear ones, as will happen to everyone. That this is not an aberration, this has not just happened to, doesn't just happen to some, it happens to everyone who is born. Everyone who is born dies, as the Wiley's Dictionary definition of birth, the leading cause of death. And, and I, pardon me for, forgive me, I should say, for bringing this in, but it's just inevitable that we, that we age, even in this, this era of the cult of youth, this is the truth, the four stages of life, and I'm bringing in the, the, because this is the Christmas season, this is the Christmas version of the four stages of life. You believe in Santa Claus. You don't believe in Santa Claus. You are Santa Claus. You look like Santa Claus. <laughs> We have to laugh because it's not easy. It's not easy. All of us, even, you know, I'm 55 years old and I can, I can feel it changing. And I'm sure that people, all of you, know that feeling of bodies getting t- tight, things are falling out. To, to <laughs> falling in. <laughs> that health is unreliable. And this is actually opening to this truth is what really turned the, the Buddha toward that, toward that deep question of what's this all about? He saw that when he saw that, um, that everything that he enjoyed was fleeting, that, his, that he was subject to, to decay and change and sickness and death, and he saw a corpse, he said, well, what's this about? If I'm subject to this, birth, sickness, old age, and death, why should I seek that which is subject to birth and death? Because he saw that everything he was seeking was not really giving him any sense of a reliable relief. And it's said in the teachings, and some of you may be more um, scholarly than me, but it's said that in confronting and in a sense, opening to this fact of, of dukkha, the unreliability of our health, of our youth, of our life, uh, that, that his pride just vanished, his pride in youth and his pride in health and his pride in life. But it left still that deep question, where is relief to be found? Of course, that became the beginning of, of his his path of, of practice, very elements that we're doing here. And he started to pay, really pay close attention. We really resist this fact. Um, as everyone's probably heard of or thought about how we dress up our corpses and how we, how we take you know, apply 
all kinds of salves and ointments and shoot ourselves and you know with with mind or body numbing what is the 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 botox phenomena we do everything to ignore this uh, and and in so many ways ignore the fact that we have we have issues as humans anybody that's born has them this is a short story about this tendency uh, to have issues with having issues. It's called the 84th problem. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. What do you mean, replied the farmer. You're supposed to be the great teacher. The Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough, others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, my teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. problem. What's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem as that we don't think we should have any problems. <laughs> this essential belief that we shouldn't have any problems or our unwillingness to open to the fact of our existence has from beginningless time spawned through fleeting reactions of liking and disliking has spawned this deep, addictive, compulsive patterning of wanting things to be different than the way they are. Did any of you notice this today? <laughs> this is what the Buddha called and what we can actually recognize in real time. You don't have to sit 10 lifetimes to begin to really understand this directly. In fact, even when he talked about the Four Noble Truths, he said these are to be seen here and now by the wise. The second truth, the cause of dukkha, the cause of our distress and our continued distress is that deep patterning of wanting things to be different than the way they are. That expresses itself as craving, craving for experiences, craving for what's next, tethering our sense of well-being to the imagined future, constantly leaning, toppling forward, craving to get rid of our, as it shows itself, with aversion. You can see on retreats, as, and those of you who have practiced before know this so well, but those of you who are new to practice periods, you will see how a simple moment's experience that produces a feeling of pleasure, like I think Mary Grace described last night, you see someone who has a beautiful shawl. 
it produces a pleasant feeling. That pleasant feeling produces a charge. And that charge goes unnoticed. It's immediately followed by, I like this. And then I like this is immediately followed by what? I've got to have this. And when it comes to that person, it leads to this, this waterfall, this intense cascade of, of fantasies from dating to mating to marriage, divorce, to the whole thing, all in the span of a few moments. We call it a, a VR, a Vipassana romance. This is just a, a, an obvious version of something that you can see. Or, or the reverse side of the, what's called the, the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, where something at the retreat or someone <laughs> triggers um, an unpleasant feeling. And we'll invite you over the course of the days to begin to notice whether an experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant. But if it's unpleasant and it goes unnoticed, immediately leads to disliking. A little charge is produced, and that charge creates a little tension. That tension wanting to be released spawns a cascade of, uh, of aversive thoughts about that person. And then before you know it, that person has become the reason for all your misery. And if only they were different, or if only the food, if only this, if only that, this is, this is the cause of dukkha operates more subtly as we, we react to particular incidents. I was so impressed uh, this morning when Gil came in the hall, and of course I may have been projecting on Gil because I'm, I'm fond of Gil, but I noticed the way he, he had just been in bed for the last two days, and he said, I feel good today, I'm happy. Now, I'm, I don't doubt that you were, he was feeling good and happy, but I know that how I've been when, I'm, when I have felt the unpleasantness of being sick before. And I know some of you have been on retreat when I described what happened when I, when I went to visit a teacher in India many years ago. I, I got some kind of delirium and I, you know, all the openings were releasing and <laughs> everything but the kitchen sink and I was dizzy and, and bedridden and and I, I really was, I was quite ill. And the teacher asked about me and sent me food. And, and I looked at it. He, in fact, he sent me a big chunk of cheese. And I couldn't figure out why. And uh, remember, my mind was just delirious. And I finally, after a couple of days of lying around, just like Gil did, I, instead of just happily taking my body to the uh, to the hall where he was meeting with people, I dragged my body to the hall. I dragged, I walked up a few different bridges along the Ganges River where I was visiting him, crossed the bridges, went and bought some bananas. Everything was a chore and some monkeys jumped out of a tree and took my bananas. And, <laughs> and, then, and then I finally made my way into seeing the teacher and he, and he looks at me and he says, he says, how are you feeling? And I said, um, I'm feeling much better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me very intently, and he said, where is sick? 
and I couldn't find sick. And it dawned on me, at that moment the bubble was burst, and it dawned on me that I had, out of that reaction of disliking, I had formed, I had entered into this identity of the one who's sick. And I had embellished it with all the thoughts and the feelings and what it means to be sick. And this is the process. There was the, when the Buddha described the second noble truth, he, he described it, the, the um, the craving for pleasure or the absence of pain, craving for becoming. I had become this sick person. And then once I've become a sick person and I'm bound by that identity, what do I have to do? I have to get rid of it. And then I'm, then I'm working on how to not be sick. And really, the moment, he, uh, moment that bubble burst, I started to feel a sense of vitality and how much... I can weigh my life down, how much I can live in that prison when the door is so wide open, even when I still have symptoms. I don't have to get lost in that state of becoming, being sick and becoming well, which can become this profound drama. Now, this is not to take anything away from it's not fun to be sick, and it's natural to want to be well. But it doesn't, uh, that sense of embellishment is what turns pain into suffering, that identification with it. Normally, this craving expresses itself as this intense uh, desire for to be somewhere else other than right now and to have something other than what I have now. Thinking that somehow I am incomplete right now my life is incomplete unless something different happens. I know that you're familiar with this. And I know it has driven, it, perhaps it is, we live in a culture of this kind of craving. Our culture is driven by keeping, keeping us in a state of dissatisfaction. And we all know this um, character in this, in this advertisement uh, in ourselves, we know this character whose name is Spence. And Spence, as this advertisement states, Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. <laughs> anyway, it goes on. Well, I guess I'll read it to you. That's why he says he has the new Ford Ranger. So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment and connect with Mother Nature by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door pickup truck. <laughs> Says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. This is the Kool-Aid that we are offered and the cynical marketing machine keeps it, uh, keeps it going. But all of this is really, on one hand, it's cynical. On the other hand, it's our innocent but ignorant attempt to find relief. And the, the sad fact is that it overshoots that, what I spoke of last night, it overshoots that open secret that what we are looking for, that relief is right in the middle of the 
this very moment, experienced as the very presence through which you are perceiving. But part of our practice is to, the Buddha said, on the first truth, this must be understood or welcome. The second truth, this habit of continually wanting things to be different than the way they are. This must be, he recommended, his prescription was to let this go, abandon this cause. How does one abandon this cause? The very practice that we're doing of meeting all of these forces in our mind, meeting the truth of wanting things to be different, feeling it directly, not thinking about it. We're wonderful at thinking about our situation. We're not so great at meeting it directly. But meeting that experience that will likely come in your sitting, and I'm going to give you a very superficial, not a superficial, but a very accessible example. Meet that moment where you want the bell to ring. Where ordinarily you would become completely fixated on that end of the sitting, and that bell being the secret to happiness. Instead, feel that state of waiting or wanting. This is the second noble truth. Feel that state of waiting. And, know, and by feeling it, by noticing it, bringing mindful attention to it. Mindful attention brings a quality of non-interference to that experience. Instead, it allows you to come out of, of the, the trance that says, that has to ring in order for me to feel okay. And we instead take our attention off of the bell and we just experience that state of wanting our experience to be different. We let ourselves feel that. And what, what do we experience then? We experience for ourselves through not interfering, the arising and passing of that waiting. And perhaps the bell hasn't even rung, and we feel relief. And this is a little window on a real-time version of the end of suffering, the end of that demand that things be different than the way they are. Take anything you're experiencing that you are in some kind of contentious relationship with, See what happens when you shift from, from an attitude of contentiousness to an attitude of openness. That's really all that we adjust in our practice, in a way, is our, is our attitude. From contraction to openness. But first, of course, we have to notice our attitude. We have to notice that we're caught in that cause of, cause of dukkha. Unfortunately, we have a lot more practice at wanting things to be different than the way they are than we do at openness. So we have to be patient, have to be kind. Let it be the cause of, of mercy and compassion toward how much of the time your mind is looking for something else. There was a point in my mid-20s or early 20s, and I'd just done a, my first few retreats. And I went to visit 
a cousin who was living in Central America. And one day I was just lying in a hammock in this little coffee shack on this hillside in Costa Rica, looking out the window. This is now 25 years into life. And it dawned on me that it was the first moment in my whole life that I didn't want to be somewhere else. And it was, it was actually quite shocking. Of course, shockingly pleasant on one hand, but, but the reflection on how much of my life was just entranced in that narrow vortex of becoming was, uh, gave me pause. But we come by this honestly, as Sogil Rinpoche puts it, Sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Samsara is that cycle of going around searching. Brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning. That endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in, and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, and sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it is so ingenious at setting for us. As one Tibetan Lama put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions which promise happiness but lead only to misery, we are like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. Again, this must be abandoned, and this is abandoned through bringing careful attention to what, to these causes of suffering in our own minds. And this both becomes the, the door to freedom, and of course, as we experience the, the effects, the, the legacy of our collective karma, you could say, it is the, also the doorway to compassion and mercy. Because in the middle of it, there is, there is, there is always that split second half breath away from, from freedom.
there is an end to dukkha, an end to stress. And the Buddha, this was the third noble truth. And this the Buddha recommended, uh, and the prescription for this diagnosis is this must be realized in real time. And of course, you can think of it as the a complete cessation of any forces of wanting, not wanting, of ignorance or delusion or mistakenly becoming identified and building a monument to whatever's going on, self-image. Or you can see it as the, the, that momentary experience of the end of whatever you have been uh, contentious about, reactive about through kind attention to your moment-to-moment experience. But in some ways, this liberation, this end of dukkha, is as simple as the shift from being lost in whatever it is that's going on to simply noticing. And I think it's really easy to underestimate um, how profound that is just to start to notice the very thing that we would normally be just lost in, to say, oh, this is wanting. This is not wanting. That very moment itself is a shift. There is, there is room to move there. Once I've taken, I've become much more um, let's see, interested in being aware of what's going on as opposed to feeding my wanting mind or my aversive mind. Once I've, I am more interested in awareness than anything that I become aware of, pain in the knee, pain in the back, frustration, sorrow, whatever it is, it becomes workable. There's space there. There's room there's a creative possibility. I'm not just being driven along in that stream of unconsciousness. There is a, a choice. I can begin to see whether my, how am I relating to this experience. I can see whether there's contentiousness, whether there's liking or disliking. I can see whether there's openness. <coughs> and in some way, this is the end of of. of um, of suffering, just in that more immediate, momentary way. Just as a way of, of cultivating this non-reactivity, um, this non-interference, one of our favorite teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, simply encourages the, the habit of, of dropping in the, the words and, the, of course, the spirit of letting go. He says, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking, wanting. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras, study the Abhidharma, Learn Pali and Sanskrit and the Majamaka and the Prajnaparamita. Get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana. Write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. 
Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There is nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> I could stop there after the, after the punchline, but this is, it's, I find this teaching so useful that I want to read the whole thing. He says, some of you might have the desire to to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go, let go. The important thing in practice is to be constant, resolute in the practice, determined to wake up, to be awake. This is not to be conceited or foolish, but resolute, even when the going is rough. Remind yourself of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. Stay with it, letting go of despair, letting go of anguish, letting go of pain, of doubt, of everything that arises and passes that we habitually cling to and identify with. Keep this letting go like a constant refrain in your mind so it just pops up on its own no matter where you are. This must be realized, this letting go. He didn't stop there. He went on to realizing that we may have a momentary experience of the release of suffering, but the whole panorama of our life is filled with both the potentials for the cause of suffering and also for the potential cause of freedom. And so, as the fourth noble truth, he said that there is a path, that it really encompasses our life. And this path, called the Noble Eightfold Path, which is really a path of warming to dukkha, the cause of it, the end of it. And it is really warming to this present moment. And it really is the, the application of mindful attention to every domain of our life, as he did. He applied the mindful attention to his speech, to his actions. He recommended in the teachings to apply that mindful attention to livelihood, so that he began, so that he, he saw that, that if we bring mindful attention moment to moment, bring that spirit of letting go, of letting be, of non-grasping, and we look upon our lives and our actions, how we relate to each other, how we relate to this planet, we look upon it with the spirit of attention and that it, we begin, as we, as we um, shape our actions, to be in harmony with, um, with non-conflict, with non-contentiousness, non-grasping. We begin to feel through being kind in our speech, not harming in our speech, not harming in our actions, not harming in our livelihood, we begin to experience the purity, what he called purity of action and the joy of, 
of um, what he called blamelessness. And, the, and we offer people the gift of fearlessness where people don't have to be afraid of us because there's a certain what you see is what you get. And he saw that this kind of attention, this warming to our actions, brought so much worldly happiness. He said there were four kinds of worldly happiness, to be able to have resources, to be able to use them wisely and to share them, to be uh, free of debt, very rare in this world, but also to be blameless to act in ways that are non-harming, that if we brought our attention to this non-harming action, that this is 16 times more important than the other three, this purity of action. And then he went on, as, as we all know, to develop the second part of the Eightfold Path, and this is what we're doing here, by training, training the mind, warming to, this, to our bodies and minds, applying energy, effort, developing the the seeds of, of concentration, and tranquility, by simply connecting every moment as we're able to and sustaining that connection. And as he did, we will, in our own way, and you probably felt, experienced some glimpses of it today, that second part of the Eightfold Path, that mental training, he began to experience a mind that was well-collected and composed, steady, bright, lots of tranquility, mind temporarily free of, of wanting to be somewhere else. Did you have a few minutes today? I'm sure you did. This he called purity of mind, purification of mind, the joy of, of being collected. And then we, we developed the last part of the eight-pole path, is through through applying that joy of being collected, but without getting too caught up in the joy, we bring it, we, we use it to pay attention to the flow of our experience. And our view of reality begins to shift very gradually. Because we begin to shift from being so caught up in our, in our views about things, our stories about things, to seeing what the basic reality is. That things come and they go. We come and we go. Our body is changing. Our mind is changing. Our moods are changing. That everything is in a state of flux. And as we, know, as we notice this, we know that there's nothing there that we can rely on that is permanent. It's un, unreliable. And we see for ourselves that anything that is changing, which is inside and outside, anything is changing, cannot be said to be independently self-existing, cannot be me or mine. And we experience that, that um, what he called purity of view, the last part of the Eightfold Path. And with that came a, a, a seeing through that this, all the self-illusions, the illusion of I am sick, I am somebody. And with that, seeing through the illusion of our separateness. And with the illusion of our separateness, a deep sense of connection with ourselves, with each other, a kind of unleashing of our, of our love. It's a natural response of, of a mind that is not 
clouded in that sense of separation. This path, this fourth noble truth, this must be cultivated or followed, whatever form, each person in their own unique way. So I'd like to end by reading a brief passage from the Buddha called A Handful of Leaves. The Blessed One was once living at Kasambi in a wood of Simsapa trees. He picked up a few leaves in his hand and he asked the bhikkhus, How do you conceive this, bhikkhus? Which is more, the few leaves that I have picked up in my hand or those on the trees in the wood. The leaves that the Blessed One picked up in his hand are few, Lord. Those in the wood are far more. So too, bhikkhus, the things that I have known by direct knowledge are more. The things that I have told you are only a few. Why I have, why I have not told them? because they bring no benefit, no advancement in the awakened life, because they do not lead to the cessation of suffering, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to liberation, to Nibbana. That is why I have not told them. And what have I told you? There is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. That is what I have told you. Why have I told it? Because it brings benefit, advancement in the practice of the awakened life, because it leads to dispassion, to letting go, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to liberation, to Nibbana. So bhikkhus, let your task be this. This is dukkha, or suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Let's sit for a moment. May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings know the sacred happiness that is without sorrow, here and now. May all beings grow in serenity. 
equanimity, being less reactive, contentious with things and people near and afar. Thank you for your kind attention on the first evening. Even Dharma talks are sometimes tough to sit through on the first night. Thank you for staying with it. Uh, We have 30 minutes now for um, mindful attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.